Apache Kafka is an open-source distributed streaming platform. Kafka was originally developed at LinkedIn, and the creators of the project eventually left LinkedIn and started Confluent, a company that is building a streaming platform based on Kafka. Kafka is very popular, but it's not easy to deploy and operationalize. That's why Confluent has built a Kafka-as-a-service product so that managing Kafka is not the job of an on-call DevOps engineer. Neha Narketa is the CTO of Confluent, and she's been on the show twice before to discuss Kafka. In our last interview, we discussed event sourcing and CQRS with Kafka. In this episode, we explore some more common enterprise uses for Kafka, and Neha talks about the engineering complexities of building a managed Kafka-as-a-service product. This was an interesting episode because it started to give insight to how Confluent is building a business, which is not something that we discussed in previous episodes. It was mostly discussing just the engineering and opportunities that people can use when they're building building things on top of Kafka. So it's it's quite cool to see Confluent evolving as a company and and releasing a product that will no doubt make it a extremely successful business. Neha Narkeda is the CTO of Confluent. She is returning to Software Engineering Daily for her third episode. Neha, welcome back to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's it's always great to talk to you about Kafka because it's a really popular project. It's a really popular product that people use. And I always like to do a bit of a refresher on what, you know, when we have these technical product discussions, what is it? You know, what are we discussing? So let's let's ease into the topic that we're going to be discussing today, which is going to be Kafka as a service and what you're building at Confluent, and just talk a little bit about why Kafka is useful. And let's start with messaging. Explain what PubSub messaging is. Yeah. So for the cool kids, you know, PubSub messaging is uh, basically like Slack for all your company's data and applications, where a channel is a topic, users send uh, messages to Slack channels, much like applications would send messages to topics in PubSub messaging. But a more technical explanation is that PubSub messaging is a messaging pattern where a set of publishers, they send messages to topics instead of sending data directly to intended receivers. What the receivers do is they subscribe to topics and get access to data. There is this fundamental decoupling that is introduced by a PubSub model where things that publish data and things that consume data they don't know about each other and hence are fully isolated from changes on either side. Most companies don't start out with this message queuing pub sub infrastructure, this different channels of doing multicast messaging. Is there some play? Because, you know, most companies, they start out like with a web app or with yeah. some sort of internal service that they're offering or external service they're offering. What is the point at which a company like let's just talk about typical web app company what is the point where they get to where they need some sort of messaging system you know i think um, messaging queues have been around for a really long time and the primary use case is point-to-point communication between applications so the moment you have a handful of applications there's going to be this need that arises where these applications need to share data in an ongoing fashion and typically that's where messaging queues come in now 
they're useful, but there are several downsides to using message queues that way. Basically, if the same data needs to go to multiple applications, then the sender application is forced to send it several times, you know, one at a time with every MQ that it has between those apps. And what what I've seen is like over time, this leads to basically n squared connections, uh, where every application ends up talking to several others, which really doesn't scale anymore. It is unmanageable and lossy. And so beyond a handful of applications, message queues come with a lot of overhead. And that is basically why Kafka was born. Mm-hmm. So the type of issue that you're describing is, for example, if I'm running an e-commerce company and a customer purchases something, you want the that purchase, the purchasing service, to communicate with several different services, like the logistics service and the accounting service. That's you right. need to send this message to multiple areas of the application. And so explain, you know, you just said that Kafka was became particularly useful for that type of use case. Why was Kafka different from the other messaging systems that came before it? So Kafka overcame, you know, a lot of fundamental drawbacks of message queues and also presented a ton of strengths that were that was needed to excel in a world of different applications that talk to each other and in a world of distributed systems where you have lots and lots of those versus just one database and uh, one data warehouse. Now, Kafka is really different from a lot of messaging systems in a number of different ways. It is built from the grounds up as a distributed system, so it is horizontally scalable and highly available. What's different about Kafka is that it is a cross between a file system, a messaging system, and a database. So it is really powerful in the ways it can be put to use that go well beyond what a point-to-point message queue can do. It can store several terabytes of history. It can scale to several hundreds of megabytes of messages per second, support low latency of communication in the middle of all that. And we were looking for a new term to describe these capabilities. And what we came up with is that Kafka is a streaming platform in the sense that it can do messaging, it can uh, do stream processing, and it can help you build these streaming data pipelines. But at the heart of it, what it does is it greatly simplifies your application architecture because your N-squared connections go away. All that uh, devolves to is applications tap into a central event bus like Kafka and then tap into it to get data. And that simplification is at the heart of Kafka's popularity. So in the world where we're doing these point-to-point communications, if I had a microservices architecture, and like I said, there is an order that comes in and the purchasing service has to communicate with the logistics service and the payment service and the accounting service, all these other services... In the world where we don't have, we're not using a message bus like Kafka, I would have to say, okay, one, you know, I'm going to send one HTTP request to this service X, one HTTP request to service Y, one HTTP request to service Z, and so you just get all these different requests. Explain how that contrasts with what we're doing with Kafka and and why it's just explain why it's more efficient. And I guess you could just, you could describe more broadly how a company with a microservices architecture might use Kafka and why that's useful. 
Yeah, I think that's a great question because that, uh, there are so, so many parallels between the data integration problem that led to the birth of Kafka, which is that you know a lot of uh, applications and systems need to share data, and that leads to these n-squared connections. We are seeing the same thing played again in the adoption of microservices because it's basically the same problem when it comes to your applications that they need to send data. And your you know, user sign-up service needs to talk to your purchasing service and accounting and billing service. And that's, to me, it's, it's the same N-squared connection problem replayed again. And so the role that you know, Kafka plays or the efficiencies is, one is that you can only send once and consume many times. That's useful because exactly the example you gave, that one event happens in your company and a lot of downstream applications need to respond to it and do something. Now, the do something part might change, but the respond to that event part doesn't change. So as a re in a response to a user sign up, you might need to send an email or in a response to a user sign up, you might need to you know, uh, put it in a newsfeed of other applications and other users and so on. And so, the advantage, you know, one of the advantages is that you, it's super efficient in the sense that you send it once, Kafka records it as an event in an ordered log, and then it automatically becomes available to any application that needs to subscribe to it. But the other efficiency is that it leads to a forward compatible application architecture. You know, let me explain that a little bit because I think it's really important. You know, as applications evolve, you know, you, you sometimes or at many times you cannot predict what are the future applications that are going to need access to the same data. So a great example is you might, you might have a web app today that might send a certain event that is needed downstream. And tomorrow, you actually don't know that you might need to build a mobile app, or in the future, you might need to expose different external APIs. Mm. What, what will happen with Kafka is that it, 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 it allows the publishers and subscribers to be fully decoupled from each other. So all the downstream services, they don't need to know that, oh, now there's a mobile app, and now the same data is coming from three different places. All it knows is that it's happily subscribing from Kafka. And so this decoupling that's introduced and this forward compatibility that it enables where future applications, you know, essentially have, you have zero cost to enable future applications. That's really the, the key benefit, in my opinion. So when the consumers of a Kafka channel are pulling messages off of the queue, does that polling process often happen? Is it one by one or is a consumer pulling off chunks of messages and caching them locally and then processing them one by one? Give us, cause, cause I mean, we're, you know, we're, if we're talking about like purchases coming in, if yeah. you had a high, if you had a high throughput of, of, of messages coming in, or, or maybe if we were talking about IOT, that might be an easier mm -hmm. explanation because IOT, you think of this super high volumes of data and different services are going to take different lengths of time to process different events so maybe you know you, you may have this uh you know different pace at which different services can process those messages so what is the the typical pattern of consumption of consuming messages 
You know, that's a, that's a great question. I think uh, Kafka works in really well in both of those cases. You know, one case where you have a really high throughput of events coming in, and the second case where you have these trickle events coming in. And in both cases, you want to be efficient in the sense that you want to get a balance of throughput and latency. What Kafka does underneath the covers is, you know, at the API level, you can consume in batches or one at a time. Underneath the covers, there are lots of efficiencies applied at the Kafka layer. So Kafka pulls, you know, messages in batches at a time and it caches locally, as you would imagine. It also has a long pole API. So when you have these trickle events coming in, you can say, you know, you just wait at the server side until an event comes by or until a timeout passes. And so it handles the trickle case really well as well. And how do people manage the different ways of integrating between the Kafka queue and the consumer application? Because if I've got a mobile application and a database and all these different types of consumers that are pulling data off of Kafka, is there a standard way that they are integrating with that message bus? Yeah, the standard way is the open source Kafka protocol. And the the protocol is implemented by a number of different libraries. So there is the consumer library that's available in not just Java, but if you use it through Confluent Platform, then in Python and .NET and Go and so on. Then there's a REST API that's useful for all the other HTTP services. And furthermore, there is the Connect API, which really encapsulates a lot of the hard parts of, you know, source and destination connections between Kafka. So depending on what application you're building, whether it's a data pipeline or simply a consumer application, you might choose to use any of these APIs that all implement the Kafka protocol underneath the covers. Okay, so we've motivated why people are using Kafka today. Now we're, I want to gravitate towards the reason we're having this conversation, with, the, which is Kafka as a service. And I think the way to get there is to discuss some of the issues that people don't want to deal with with Kafka. So like, you know, these things that we've discussed where, okay, you get to decouple the producer of an event and the multitude of consumers of an event. That's great. You know, you might get new consumers of an event, of an event source that the event creator doesn't need to worry about. Like, that's great that you can just add a new mobile app that's consuming this data source and the creator of the data source doesn't even have to worry about it. That's fantastic. Of course, what are the problems and the the issues that people experience when they're deploying and managing Kafka that are less pleasant to deal with? You know, some issues are related to operations. So as you mentioned, deployment and management of the Kafka server and cluster itself. And other issues are around, you know, management of schemas and management of data pipelines. So separating those two issues, you know, attacking the first one, which is that there is a certain amount of you know, overhead that comes with deploying and managing any distributed system. And Kafka is just one of them. You know, you need uh, skilled SREs who understand the nuances 
of a distributed system are able to deploy and operate the system for 24-7 availability. These skilled SREs that also have Kafka knowledge, they are really hard to find. So unsurprisingly, there's a huge industry-wide trend to move to managed services, to move away from the business of buying machines and hiring these expensive, hard-to-find people to manage these services and instead focus on the application business logic. But there are some things, you know, that are unique to Kafka as well that you need to be skilled at in order to operate it 24-7. Some of those problems are, uh, you know, classic sort of data systems problems where if there are, if there's some kind of traffic patterns that change that uh, need you to load balance the data differently, then staying on top of detecting that issue and then running a set of tools to be able to automatically balance that data out, that's just one example of an issue that is unique to Kafka. And so coming back to the the issues around, you know, development and and management of the data itself, those are attacked through, we we experienced this firsthand when we deployed and managed Kafka ourselves, is there's there's an issue around management of schemas, there's an issue around just having visibility into end-to-end monitoring for your data. And, And what we've done is twofold. For the management issue, we've just launched Confluent Cloud so that you can use the entire Kafka and Confluent platform as a service. And for the latter, we continue to invest in product tools to ease the management of schemas and be able to provide a UI where you can view the end-to-end sort of SLA on your data itself beyond just Kafka. Can you describe that term schema management more? Yeah, for any data that is sent through Kafka, there is some metadata that describes the data itself. Now that metadata could be in JSON or it could be in Avro or Protobuf or any of these other serialization formats. Kafka itself is a schema agnostic system. So all it understands is bytes in and bytes out. But ultimately, if you want to use it at company-wide scale, you need to worry about changes to your metadata, right? So what if, you know, an upstream publisher just deletes a field that some downstream consumers depended on? And so the moment you push an update to this publisher system or application, all these downstream consumer applications break. And that's a classic schema management problem that companies face, oftentimes, you know, 10 steps down the line. So when you have just two applications and the same developer managing those two applications, no one worries about this. But the moment you have 10 or 20, you suddenly realize that this is a problem. And so we we built a, a thing called schema registry that allows a central registry mm-hmm. of all schemas that allows applications to detect whether you're introducing incompatible changes. And it's an optional thing that you can choose to use that's available through Confluent Open Source. Mm. So would people put that somehow into a, a continuous integration pipeline or something, like check against the schema registry if I'm making an update to my database schema? Or how, like what is the process? So if I'm going to, if I, if I'm a, if I have downstream consumers and I'm writing some sort of service and I'm about to push a breaking change, when do I get notified by the schema registry? Like, how do I get prevented from making that breaking change? 
Yeah. So what you what you do is there's a little wrapper on the client side that just sits with the Kafka client. If you choose to use the schema registry, and then there's a server side which is just the registry. When you if you use this and when you try to push the change that introduces that perhaps backwards incompatible uh, change to your schema, what it does is the Kafka client tries to talk, tries to register that new schema in the registry, and before it can send any data, it it gets an act from the registry and then it caches that. If that acknowledgement is like, oh no, this is a, a you know breaking change, then it won't be able to send those messages. And essentially, it's, it comes down to your philosophy of uh, handling these, these changes is for, for years together, the, the philosophy around ETL was that you just push any data in and then there's a lot of cleaning under downstream. What, what we said is with streaming pipelines, it's really hard to get any value from your streaming pipeline. So what's better to do is instead enable a clean data in, clean data out service. That's what Schema Registry would allow you to do. So I take it you're not a fan of versioning schemas. <laughs> this, in fact, version schemas underneath the covers because you, what you want to also be able to do, you know, before you push the change is be able to go to this registry and just try out your new schema and know what the previous version was. Mm. And a utility service on top of that is be able to, you know, as a data owner or as a business owner, just be able to go in this registry and look what the changes were between two different versions. So it does do versioning underneath the covers. So help us understand the hosting model here and what we're getting out of like a like a Kafka as a service thing because I think what you know a lot of people do these days is they have their own Kafka deployment that is running on AWS along with the rest of their infrastructure that's running on AWS or Google Cloud or whatever it is mostly AWS what would we get out of a the, the Kafka as a service Confluent Cloud, like what is the business uh, offering? So the business offering is that Confluent Cloud is a fully managed streaming data service that offers Kafka as a service today and in the future will offer the entire Confluent platform with mm. schema registry and the REST proxy and lots of connectors. And so the the, uh, the way it offers that is essentially like just like any other managed data service, where what you do as a user is specify what you need in terms of compute, storage, availability, and, and just depend on Confluent Cloud to then run your Kafka server or your schema registry fully managed manner. So is it is it still running on servers that the buyer purchases from AWS? No, it it is a fully managed service in the sense that we take care of provisioning servers underneath the covers on the okay. cloud provider that it runs. So in some sense, it's just like any other multi-tenant hosted fully managed service that a cloud provider might offer, except that it is cloud provider agnostic and it will support all the open source Kafka APIs and the open source Kafka protocol. Hmm. So if I'm developing on a cloud provider like AWS or Google, like let's say I have a just the web app, I'm in that early web app stage and I'm getting to the point where I want to have some sort of message queuing infrastructure and I can go with one of these managed messaging products from AWS or Google, 
why would I choose Confluent Cloud in contrast to one of those services? So one is that you're probably looking for Kafka. So Kafka is you know, one of the most popular streaming data services out there. So there's a large set of users that is just looking for Kafka, but Kafka as a service wasn't available really from Confluent. And so that was a gap. But there are several other advantages as well. So one is that if you use Confluent Cloud, you not only get Kafka as a service, but because it supports the open source Kafka protocol and APIs, you actually get access to the entire prolific open source ecosystem of Kafka. So all the connectors, all the clients, you know, all the tools that the community has developed around Kafka, you still have the optionality to pick and choose and use those tools along with Confluent Cloud. We thought that's a, that's a major advantage that we must offer our community with this service. So that's one. And the other is you know, the variety of tools that will be available from Confluent Cloud around Kafka. You know, be it schema registry or be it connectors to, to S3 and DynamoDB and, and uh, other services, that's the other. And the final one is, you know, optionality of moving your application to another cloud provider if you choose to, you know, because you will be programming your applications to open source Apache Kafka APIs. If you choose to move from one cloud provider to another, it really doesn't lock you in to the proprietary APIs if you choose to use one of the proprietary services. Yeah, I mean, for a while I've thought about why... AWS, you know, they have Kinesis, which is sort of like a pub sub thing, and they have and Google has I think Google Cloud Pub Sub, which is a Google Pub Sub thing. For a while I was wondering like why don't these companies just focus on a Kafka offering? But I think <laughs> it's it's probably because they you know, Amazon had some internal thing and then they were like, "Well, let's just like make this available as a service." And Google probably said the same thing. And, you know, they were like, well, we know how to run this thing because it works internally. Why, would, why don't we just offer that? And plus it's proprietary. So maybe we, like we get some lock-in advantages business-wise. That's right. Do you, have any, do you have a sense for how these, like how those products qualitatively differ from Kafka? So a, a, I think the, the Kinesis versus Kafka one is, is simpler because it's, uh, it's more of an apples to apples comparison. So Kinesis, the way we, we saw it evolve, it was very much influenced from the initial Kafka paper. But there are several key differences. One is in just the scalability of the system. So Kinesis, you know, throttles you at a, at a very low sort of five messages per second kind of rate. And beyond that, you have to add shards and that increases the cost of the system versus Kafka can, uh, can scale from, you know, 0.1 megabytes per second all the way to 100 megabytes per second if you want it. And the cost is still, you know, comparable there. But there are several other features that are, you know, missing. In the last couple of years, Kafka has evolved from being just a PubSub system to a full distributed streaming platform. So, you know, just like features like log compaction, where you can keep data infinite for an infinite amount of time, where it compacts based on keys, or having access to connectors to all these different systems, or even being able to do stream processing 
on Kafka. A lot of these features are not available. In the latest release of Kafka, we're enabling exactly one's guarantees end-to-end. So that's going to be a major differentiator between any of these services and Confluent Cloud and hence Apache Kafka. That's an interesting point. I think it's probably worth going into that exactly once guarantee discussion a little bit. Explain why exactly once is an important feature. In any kind of distributed request response system, you know, like Kafka or even otherwise, there is this inherent problem where if you send the data and you wait for an acknowledgement, that the acknowledgement could fail for multiple reasons, whether it's a network failure or some other reason. And if you're the publisher, you really don't know what happened. Perhaps the message was already written on the server side and the acknowledgement was lost, or maybe the message wasn't written at all. So as a publisher, what you can do is resend data. And that's the reality of any RPC. But what happens when you resend is in some of these cases, you end up sending the same message, which gets written twice, and a duplicate is introduced. Now, this is relevant to a lot of Kafka applications because Kafka is used in mission-critical applications where people depend on you know the absence of duplicates. So for example, Kafka is used to process credit card payment payments. So you, you definitely want that to be exactly one. So Kafka is used in billing pipelines and you, you definitely want that to be exactly one. It's used in ad impression counting. So a lot of business critical use cases need this guarantee that, hey, I just want to send my data and I hope that it will be processed exactly once. And so this was the motivation behind putting in so much work in Kafka to make it exactly once. Prior to that, Kafka guaranteed in order delivery with at least one's guarantees. Why is that such a hard... I feel like we might have discussed this on a previous episode, but I, if we did, I forgot. Why is it such a hard distributed systems problem? I mean, I've read some distributed systems papers, and I know like every problem in distributed systems is hard. <laughs> But maybe you could talk about why exactly once processing in particular is so hard and maybe some explanation of like the algorithmic hoops you have to jump through. Yeah. So, you know, the example I gave, you you can sort of consider a simple case for that example, which is, you know, just a single partition point-to-point problem, right? So if you had a single partition and you had only one publisher and only one subscriber, that you still have to deal with this duplicate issue, right? But the solution for that particular problem is slightly simpler. It's just called idempotence, where you know you detect uh, or you keep track of the ID of the publisher and you have a sequence number for your messages. So if you end up retrying the message with the same sequence number with the same producer ID, then you can easily detect duplicates and and get rid of those. But Kafka is a sharded system. So it has multiple partitions and uh, several publishers that could write to multiple partitions and several subscribers that could consume from them. So in a case where you have several partitions, then the guarantees that you're looking for devolve to, well, can I write a set of messages atomically across multiple partitions so that I, all the subscribers either see all of those messages 
or they see none of those messages. And that guarantee is particularly hard to provide. You can imagine you have to keep track of the transactions. So we call it transactions, but it's not quite database transactions. What we're trying to provide is in-order atomic rights across partitions. That is significantly harder. You know, it's, it's, it's much harder to even explain how we've solved it, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, uh, yeah, but you can imagine that the easier problem itself is, you know, solved through just item portals. But when multiple shards are involved, it, it becomes much harder. Essentially, you're doing distributed transactions at the same time, keeping track of ordering. And there's one step further in Kafka uh, that builds on these two guarantees that I just described, which is item potency and atomic rights, to provide exactly one's stream processing. And that's the the real, uh, I would say, killer feature that the community is looking for, is they want to do these read, process, write kind of operations. You know, that's essentially what stream processing is on top of Kafka. You read messages, you process them, and you write them back. And you want that read process write operation to be exactly once. So in order to provide that guarantee, we need to rely on these previous two guarantees. And we're happy to note that in the upcoming O11 release in, in, in June, that we've tackled all these three problems. And so any stream processing you know, application that's written using the Streams API will be end-to-end exactly once. And that's a really powerful guarantee. So when the Confluent team is trying to solve these really hard distributed systems problems, I'm really curious how this proceeds. Because in academia, I think it's typically, you know, you have like one or two people and they're just like, you know, stay up really late, drinking a lot of coffee <laughs> and thinking about this and like writing it out, maybe like on just blank sheets of paper with, you know, really long, you know, screeds. And then maybe occasionally they get in a room together and they whiteboard some stuff. And then eventually it comes out in the form of a, a long paper, and the paper is really descriptive, and it's really uses really precise language. But now, I mean, it's like these days, the I think a lot of the distributed systems breakthroughs are happening within companies, you know, it, in team formats. I mean, how does how does the communication around solving a really nitty gritty problem like that occur? Does it happen on Slack or does it <laughs> happen in you know? Are you whiteboarding? What? How do these discussions get resolved? That's such a great question because I've I've witnessed a, a, a really amazing small, you know, not particularly research scientists or whatnot. This you know set of engineers solve this along with the community, which is really the 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 key sort of um, win here is that we not only brainstormed this in a in a small team, but we did that successfully with the community, and I'm really proud of that. You know, it, it happens in stages. There, there are some engineers that nail down sort of the guarantees and then think about, you know, given the current architecture of Kafka and these guarantees that we want to provide, what are the sets of solutions that are viable and what are the trade-offs and which trade-offs are acceptable to our users and which trade-offs are not. I think the the team, you know, tackled this through not only meticulous sort of product-oriented thinking around this problem, uh, coupled with constraints around the architecture, but this team was particularly good at 
communication with the community. So we have this thing called uh, Kafka improvement proposals that uh, the community writes for any big change in Kafka. And I would really encourage people who are listening to this podcast to go read the the clip for exactly one stream processing in Kafka and go look at the discussion. I think it's it's one to uh, emulate and it's one to just follow. It's an incredibly hard problem that was solved with a community of people. I'm so proud to work with these engineers here at Confluent. Hmm. Wow. Okay. Well, yeah, it sounds like kind of the level of detail and complexity that happens in, for example, like in the in the Linux kernel, like in those mailing lists where yes. people get really emotional and they really go into detail <laughs> about like, here's how you should implement some file system thing. You know, it sounds like you can have those same kind of conversations, not necessarily around lines of code in the Linux kernel, but you're having them around here's how you solve this theoretical, like it's a theoretical problem. You're not looking at code, right? You're looking at like a theoretical issue. Yeah, we we looked at, uh, you you know, making a, a traditionally theoretical set of guarantees into a practical, you know, feature for a a large community and an existing widely adopted system. And I think that's where the win lies is this uh, this was made practically possible. And that came through a lot of constructive communication and a lot of deep thinking. So as you get a lot of customer volume on Confluent Cloud and you start to manage a lot of Kafka clusters, You're the CTO of Confluent, so you're going to be solving a lot of interesting problems around how you manage the scale. I mean, what happens when you're just managing tons and tons of Kafka clusters? You must be watching this, all of the the Kubernetes developments quite closely, because I'm sure there's some a lot of stuff around management that you can learn and leverage from the Kubernetes community. Can you talk some about the technical architecture of of what you're doing to host and manage tons of Kafka clusters at scale? <laughs> yeah, sure. You know, it would be difficult to do justice to describing the architecture in great detail, but let me summarize the the various building blocks. I think first off, our design philosophy for Confluent Cloud was to build it from the grounds up to be cloud agnostic. And we made that decision in the early days and that has influenced the design of every building block. Now, there are so many different uh, parts to bringing this product together. I think there's a provisioning service that takes the throughput retention availability requirements from the user, does capacity planning, provisions the Kafka resources on appropriately sized EC2 instances, and there's a lot of, um, you know, sort of uh, expertise around Kafka and understanding AWS in order to automate the provisioning service. Then there is a a bunch of um, monitoring and alerting services that collect data and metrics from various levels, you know, right from EC2 to the operating system to, to JVM to Kafka, so that we can monitor at these various levels to really automate the and, and reduce the mean time to recovery. And then there is a bunch of, you know, where, where Kubernetes and Confluent Cloud and, and sort of the parallels come in is around the failure recovery and auto healing part, right, where we have to respond to, we build these layers that respond to various flavor, uh, failures and then rebalance data in Kafka is needed, uh, be able to reprovision those instances. 
in under the constraints of what the user provided, whether they want within AZ replication or cross AZ replication, in order to bring the system back to full operation in an automated fashion. So we have a, we have a lot of focus on cloud agnostic behavior and automation around manual operation in order to scale, you know, our ability you know, as a startup to run this massively large Kafka installation. Mm. So to jump back to what a user, what a, a developer who wants to run their Kafka on Confluent Cloud, what they want, to jump back to that, if I'm using the Confluent Cloud service, I pick my throughput, my retention, and my replication. And you just mentioned that those knobs that the user tunes, those lead to ways that you're going to provision and configure the auto-healing and the scalability of the of the underlying infrastructure. So I'd, I'd kind of like to dive into that as an issue, but let's let's start with like the surface level for what the user wants out of that. So if I'm a user, I'm building some application, I pick these features, throughput, retention, and replication. What do I want from those different knobs? You know, uh, what, what users want to not think about is how to capacity plan Kafka brokers, how to manage them, and how many you need, and how large should they be. And instead, what they want to think about is, you know, how much compute do I need for my application, which is expressed in throughput in megabytes per second? How much storage uh, I want for my application, which is expressed in retention, which in Kafka could be a day or 30 days or even more. And uh, what sort of availability do I want to pay for? You know, whether it is within a single AZ, replicated twice or across AZs, you know, where AZs are availability zones or data centers in Amazon terminology. And whether I want that much availability for my service or not. And so what we've done is, you know, allowed sort of observed the, you know, user behavior and, and, and concluded that users want to express the needs of their application in parameters they understand. Understand. And what they don't want to think about is how that translates into how many Kafka brokers you need, how large should they be, and how should that change over time. So in Confluent Cloud, what we concluded is what you specify are those three parameters, and here you hit go. And that's what we promise as Confluent Cloud operators, as, as you know, uptime, availability, and performance guarantees that you might expect. And we'll do the hard work of thinking about how to capacity plan. You know, believe it or not, I think the, the most frequently asked question in the Kafka community is, well, how do I know how many brokers or how many partitions I need? Mm. And with Confluent Cloud, that, that will entirely go away. You know, not only that, but a, a lot of other problems that uh, you have to overcome even after that. Mm. Can you talk a little bit about the mapping between, if I'm a user and I set some levels of throughput and retention and replication, how does that translate to what you're doing at the auto-scaling and the auto-healing level of your infrastructure? 
at some level, you know, the, the intelligence lies in there is some golden sort of, you know, ratio that we've accumulated from observing tons and tons of deployments between, <laughs> uh, you know, how many partitions per broker work well and, and what kind of per broker throughput works well for a certain instance size. So there are a lot of these, you know, sort of provisioning observations that we've accumulated over time. And we've, we've taken those and then build the service out of it that figures out, you know, given your requirements, how do we, you know, knowing the limits of a certain broker or a certain size cluster, how would we best spread out your data? Not only today, but note that in SaaS services, you know, users might start one place and then grow into another tier. And so what we have done is we've thought about, well, as users grow, you know, how would the quotas or your particular tenant be set so that A, you don't overcome and uh, overwhelm all the other users, as well as uh, you get the room you need to grow over time. Of course, the, the, the billing side of the thing where it keeps track of how much you've used and hence how much you will pay at the end of the month. Yeah, that's the advantage of having been involved in Kafka since the earliest days is you've just seen yes. so much it's, it's not like, I mean, this is, you know, the, the picking how knobs of throughput retention replication map to actual lower level configuration stuff. That's not something that you're going to find a proof for theoretically. That's more something that is going to come from experience. That's exactly right. Yeah. So, you know, on our the last conversation we had was about CQRS and event sourcing and why Kafka is useful for those sorts of things. And in that episode, we talked about how if you have this event stream, you often have multiple databases that are going to be updated in response to that event stream. So for example, if you have an event on your event queue, you might have your Elasticsearch index that gets updated, and then you have your MySQL database that gets updated. You have all these different data sources that get updated, and something needs to handle the process of doing that update. And, I, and I've had a couple conversations recently with people who are building serverless frameworks. And basically the idea is, oh, you can use these AWS Lambda services or mm -hmm. some other function as a service to update the, the consumers that are consuming the event stream. Have you have you been doing any interesting work around the functions as a service stuff? Or maybe you could talk some about what your opinions are for what's the best system of processing those events when you just have those, you know, lots of small event updates. Yeah. So let me, uh, you know, just sort of describe what, what's my understanding of functions as a service, right? It's, it's all about running some backend code without managing your own server systems or your own server applications. And oftentimes the way it is expressed is these functions are code snippets that are triggered by event types that might be defined by the provider. So in Amazon Lambda, these stimuli or triggers could include file updates in S3, or they could be scheduled tasks or messages that are added to a message bus like Kinesis. Certainly, I think, um, you know, a system like Kafka and where the parallels are drawn here are is that it stores much of the streaming data in a company. So it makes sense as one of those stimuli or triggers where you can write your little functions 
where they're run, you know, in some kind of Lambda kind of service or a service that might be available on Confluent Cloud. And you use Kafka as one of those sources for those events. But uh, there are some limitations on such functions, the way it is defined by Lambda. So in the sense that it has to be stateless. There are certainly stateless computations, but there are lots of stateful computations as well. And it cannot take more than five minutes to run. So while that is useful for some cases, it cannot do any kind of long running stream processing or transformations. So a lot of the thinking and the work we are doing is around, it's twofold. One is, well, what is the you, you know AWS Lambda equivalent that will allow you to run these stateless, you know, short-lived transformations on top of Kafka? And they're just like, you, you know, providing Kafka as a source to Lambda might be the easy answer. But the harder part is, you know, what kind of service do people need to be able to do these long-running stateful stream processing? kind of transformations like developers love to do using the Kafka's Streams API or Spark or similar services. So when that support is available for doing that in Confluent Cloud, I'm sure the entire Kafka base will be very happy as they will be able to do both stateless as well as stateful processing easily on a common sort of compute layer. Mm. Okay. So that sort of API is not really there yet or that functionality is not built into the Confluent cloud yet, but you're starting to think about how you might offer that to customers. That's that's exactly right. I think that makes a ton of sense given that Kafka is primarily used for stream processing. So that would be a very natural set of things that you might expect from a hosted Kafka as a service product like Confluent Cloud. Mm. Have you seen any cutting edge Kafka use cases lately that have surprised you, like maybe companies that are doing heavy machine learning pipelines or something else? So the most cutting edge or exciting use cases I've seen are around IoT and um, around creating these intimate real-time customer experiences. So for instance, you know, a major automotive company, along with several others, they're investing in this connected car initiative where thousands of sensors uh, will feed onboard processors on cars. Cars will report data in a streaming fashion through Kafka, allowing these companies to alert drivers to avoid accidents, and also to be able to do this real-time traffic routing across the entire country. I think that's really exciting. Similarly, around the real-time customer experiences, the cruise ships are using Kafka to uh, create a digital real-time customer experience both shipboard as well as offshore, you know, for booking activities, dinner reservations, applying gambling credits. It's very similar to, you know, the the talk you might see at Kafka Summit New York, uh, the keynote that talked about event-driven banks, where a lot of banks' commodities, they're getting commoditized, essentially, and a lot of the differentiation is around providing a more intimate, a more useful, real-time customer experience. I think that's a pretty big shift in, you know, sort of uh, the applications of Kafka from just the low-level message messaging to, you know, sort of providing this high-level business value around customer experiences and competitive advantage. Cool. All right. Well, Neha, it's been great talking to you. Uh, do you have any closing thoughts on Kafka or Confluent Cloud or what you're working on right now? 
You know, closing thoughts are, you know, we look really looking forward to exactly ones uh, being available in the Kafka community. I'm really, really looking for Confluent Cloud to be generally available. But right now we've started onboarding early customers. And the way to sign up for that is going, uh, go to confluent.io and sign up. I think the, le- the last thought I'll leave people with is Kafka Summit SF is coming up in, in August uh, and spaces are filling out quickly. We have an awesome agenda lined up. And I hope to see the community there. Cool. Well, it, it's really fun to watch Confluent thriving. I've been watching it for several years now, and it's just exciting to see more infrastructure providers getting a lot of traction. And because I just think it's 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 really helpful to the software engineering community as a whole when there are more and more providers. And it's also just interesting to see. You know, maybe like three or four years ago, it would have looked like really niche to be like, okay, so this is a company built around Kafka, but now we're seeing, oh, this is actually a huge area of innovation, and it makes complete sense to have a provider that is focused entirely on this technology. Absolutely. I think I'm I'm looking forward to seeing how it actually plays out in real businesses. Okay. All right, Neha. Well, it's been a pleasure. It's been a pleasure, too. Thank you.